Hello and welcome back to the podcast. In today's episode, I am so very excited to share with you this incredible conversation I have had with Kirsty. For those who don't know Kirsty, she's a mom to two and she became the first Australian to receive a uterus transplant in Australia and the uterus she received was not any uterus, it was her own mother's uterus and then subsequently got pregnant with that transplanted uterus and had her baby boy in December. So this story is absolutely incredible. It really goes to show the progress that science has made in recent years. And this is a story of hope. Kirsty is an incredibly brave woman. She is inspiring and her story is just unreal. I am still blown away by this interview. So to introduce Kirsty, Kirsty is a mom to two and in this episode she shares with us her first pregnancy and birth of her daughter Violet and she takes us through what was a healthy pregnancy with no complication and during the birth of a daughter there became a need for an emergency c-section which then resulted in Kirsty having a very 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 heavy bleed as a result of this she ended up needing a life-saving emergency hysterectomy which meant that when she woke up two days after the birth of a daughter, after being placed in an induced coma, she finally got to meet her daughter, but she also realized that this was it. She couldn't carry any more children of her own. And during this time, Kirsty said that she didn't really think about it and she tried to push it aside. It wasn't until a while after this happened that she was on a Facebook group and she happened to see a post about a clinical trial down at the University of New South Wales who were doing research on uterine transplants. So the transplant of uterus. Kirsty inquired about it and she takes us through the hoops and everything she had to go through to be accepted as part of this clinical trial and then she takes us through how she became the very first woman in Australia to have received a uterus transplant and it wasn't any uterus that she received it was her own mother's uterus who carried herself and her brother. As a result of this successful uterus transplant, she then went on to transplant one of her and her husband's embryo, and she gave birth in December of 2023 to their baby boy, Henry. This is the whole story of Kirsty that I am sharing with you today. I am so very excited. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. It has been a joy to listen to it. Thank you so much, Kirsty, for coming on the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure to have you. You are listening to Kappa with a Doula. I'm your host, Alicia, exercise physiologist and doula. And every week I chat with a mom or mom-to-be about all things pregnancy, birth, and parenting. The stories you will hear in this podcast are real and sometimes raw, but they are all told without any taboo. So grab yourself a cuppa, put your earphones in, relax, and enjoy this episode. 
Kirsty. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Hi, Leisha. Thank you for having me. Oh, no problem. I'm so glad you're here because you have a very, very, very tiny human on you who's very fresh out of the womb, only a month old. And um, let's get you to introduce yourself. So tell the listeners your name, where you're living, and who is in your beautiful family. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Kirsty Bryant. I live on the Mid-North Coast. I live at Emerald Beach, and it's myself, my husband, my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Violet, and our newest addition is Henry, and he is four weeks old. Wow, that is incredible, and he's at the moment sleeping, so hopefully he's not too bothered by us talking, you know? <laughs> no, no, fingers and toes crossed, but he's, yeah, he's, he's a good little sleeper. He's a little, no. yeah. No. Such a cute bunch. Oh, amazing. And Kirsty, you're a bit of a celebrity out there, aren't you? Because <laughs> we're going to dive into your story. But you are Australian's first uterine transplant recipient. And we're going to dive into how that came to be. And you have had Henry after this transplant of your mom's uterus, which is absolutely mind-blowing yeah. science, right? Wow. Yes. Oh, wow. I can't wait to dive into it. So I usually start by asking all my guests, Kirsty, did you always want to be a mum? No, surprisingly. Um, I didn't think I was going to be a mum until I met my husband. And then, yeah, definitely once we got married, I was like, we we literally start, I, I, I said to him, oh, it could take so long, you know, let's start straight away. And um mm-hmm. We actually fell pregnant the month after we got married um, and we didn't get much practicing in. And unfortunately, that pregnancy ended in a miscarriage at sort of eight weeks. And then I had a natural period and then fell pregnant with our daughter, Violet. So um, we were very, very lucky. We sort of were relatively young, um, 28. Yeah. But... No, I I didn't think I was going to have kids, but once I met my husband, yeah, definitely started imagining it all, you know, the house, uh, the the marriage and all the children that come along with it. So, yeah. Wow. So it really goes to show it it was you didn't want to be a mom with anyone. You obviously you needed to meet the right one. And was your husband on the same page? Did he also want kids when, you know, was there a discussion you had early on or a bit later in your relationship maybe? Yeah, like, you know, we met when we were 21 um, mm-hmm. and we dated for quite some time and, you know, we spoke about it. You know, we both had siblings. You know, we were like, oh, yeah, you know, kids you know, but it probably wasn't until we built the home that we're living in and we were a little bit settled that we both said, yeah, let's do this. And yeah, we we were the first out of our friendship groups to have kids. Like a couple of my girlfriends I went to school with have had kids, but not sort of my close circle. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Nick was sort of in the same boat. You know, he he had people around him with children, but his close friendship circle, no one sort of had had children just yet. Now we're on to our second. Everyone's sort of catching up to us and everyone's having their first. But, um, yeah, we, both Nick and I knew that, yeah, we definitely wanted to have kids sort of once we'd settled a little bit and got the house and, you know, things started 
falling into place. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Once, you know, you can kind of see, you know, I guess where your life is going, then, you know. Yeah, it's... and that foundation, I think. Um, yeah, exactly. We've had plenty of years together, just the two of us. And, yeah, we were ready to add someone else to the mix. Yeah, that makes sense. Beautiful. So you knew that it could take some time to fall <laughs> pregnant. You know, it doesn't happen all, you know, straight away. But, I mean, for you, it kind of happened straight away. <laughs> Was you. it a shock when you found out you were pregnant with Violet? Yeah, we actually laughed for quite some time because we thought, how did we not accidentally fall pregnant if this is how quickly? So um, I had to, yeah, I definitely, yeah, we were definitely shocked. I think, my, you know, my husband was definitely shocked. You know, we, you know, we were excited. We got married in the April and, yeah, we found out in the May. And then, yeah, it was, it was just, yeah, it was, it, again, it was, it happened very quickly. <laughs> Did you know much about pregnancy and what to do when you found out you're pregnant at that point? Because it took you like one minute 30 to fall pregnant. <laughs> I don't have any sisters myself, but my <laughs> I do have a wonderful sister-in-law and <laughs> my sister-in-law um, by that stage already had two children. So, um, yes, I was, and again, I, I'm very close with my mum. So, yeah, once, I, well, I had been to the doctors, my GP, the first time round when I fell pregnant and then yeah. we did the whole process. And then so the second time round, I actually held off a little bit because I thought, oh, mm -hmm. I'll just see how I go. And then I went back to the GP and said, hi. And he said, oh, you're back so soon. And I said, oh, I'm pregnant. And he was like, what? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm pregnant. And he, and he had to sort of look at the calendar and he's like, have you had a period? I was like, yeah, I've had one period and now I'm pregnant. And he was like, oh, that's wonderful. That's great. <laughs> but even he sort of looked at the calendar thinking, oh, you're back so soon. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, we, were you told after you had the miscarriage to wait or was there any advice given in, in that regard um, of, you know, having not, a natural period? Not from my GP, but I do remember I ended up seeing a, a lovely doctor at our local hospital. And I do remember her giving the advice to wait. And I mean, it was a conscious thing, but it's, you know, it sort of wasn't, you know, I had been obviously when I had the miscarriage, you, you know, been bleeding, I stopped for yeah. a little bit and then I got my period and then, yeah. So no, it sort of just all happened. Yeah. Pretty, pretty casually, pretty naturally. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, I, you know, we hadn't even really had the conversation again to be like, are we going to tr try again? It sort mm -hmm. of, it just sort of happened again. And we were like, oh, wonderful, we're pregnant. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> Which, I, you know, again, chalk and cheese to my second time round because, you know, the first time, you know, we weren't thinking about timelines, we weren't tracking things. Mm -hmm. You know, I was taking a, like a pregnancy multivitamin, but, yep. you know, as for tablets and medications, like, you know, that wasn't even on my mind first time around. Mm -hmm. But the second time, very, very, very different. So actually talking about it now, it's um, it's sort of nice. Like I've, you know, seen both sides and um, yeah, yeah, yeah it, it's part of our story. So, yeah. 
Yeah, no, exactly. That's right. So so you found that you were pregnant with Violet around, what is it, July, June, July at that point? Yeah. So you went to your GP. And so what model of care did you want to go to or did your GP, I guess, you know, guide you towards? Yeah. So my when my sister-in-law was pregnant in on the Mid-North Coast, we didn't have the MGP, so the midwifery mm-hmm. group practice. So I only knew what my sister-in-law had told me. So she just saw her GP and then she saw a different midwife every time she went to the hospital. She never saw a OBGYN until yep. the baby was born, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and my niece and nephew. So um, that was sort of what I was expecting. And then yep. my wonderful GP sort of explained to me, hey, we've got this new thing happening with the hospital. I'll get, the, I'll write you this referral and we'll see if you get accepted. There's only a certain amount of places, but you know, you're low risk. So you should, you should be able to get spot on the program and meet two alternate midwives. And, and yeah, so he explained it to me, but I didn't realize how wonderful it was going to be. So yeah. I think I met my midwives at about hmm, maybe 16 weeks. Mm-hmm. And we did a few appointments, not at the hospital. And we just did a few questionnaires and things. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I had two wonderful midwives, but I also was able to be linked up with a student midwife as well. Oh, yes. um, so again, I had three very friendly, lovely faces that, so my, my student midwife was there for all of my appointments. And then yep. I basically saw either of the, the midwives. So I really... Yeah, I, I was very, very lucky to be a part of the program, um, considering there, you know, there wasn't that many spots when I was having Violet. Now that it's been established for a couple of years, most of the people I know, most of my friends have gone through the MGP. Yep. I just think it's a fantastic modality of getting, you know, yep. your, your pregnancy care. I can't believe that, yeah, you know, four or five years ago, it wasn't, we didn't have it on the Mid-North Coast. Yeah. I know. It's, it is the gold standard of care for pregnancy because you get that continuity of care you know you know probably who's going to be in labor you know if if everything goes pretty well you know if the universe is not messing around with you too much (laughs) but yeah it's fantastic because you're getting to know this midwife or these midwives and they just know you they they usually support a low intervention you know undisturbed hospital birth or potentially even home birth for some programs where they, you know, they might be publicly funded home births. And yeah, we know that it's got such amazing outcomes for the mom and for the baby as well. And you get postpartum, you know, visits afterwards as well, which is hugely important because as a first time mom, it's all well and good to be, you know, supported in pregnancy and birth, but then you've got your baby and you go, oh, actually, I I don't know what to do now. Yeah, I can attest to that. Like when you're pregnant, your whole world is pregnancy. And again, thinking about birth, I think first time round, yeah, it definitely, I don't really think that was on, you know, postpartum was not on my radar. You know, I thought I was going to be, you know, in this blissful baby bubble and I'd be on maternity leave. I'd be going to cafes and things like that. I don't think you really think about that first, you know, six to 12 weeks. um, Yeah, post birth. But um, I completely agree with everything you just said. 
it's yeah the the continuity of care is just so important I think for all all pregnancy you know all pregnant women but um especially that first time around for me you know they're giving you so many so much information you know so you go in feeling you know very empowered I I am yeah I would not change anything about my my care that's right and it's so good that your GP was aware of this because at that time it was um, starting to be, you know, like rolled out essentially. So it's good that your GP was aware of it and was able to see that you'd be a, a fantastic candidate for it, you know, a fantastic patient and that, yeah, he referred you. That's amazing because sometimes... I love my GP. He yeah. is, I've continued with him even to now, so he's been a part yeah. of my pregnancy journey with Violet and then also with the um, uterine transplant and um, supporting me through that yeah so yeah again if you fall I think it's very very important it speaks to having a really good GP and having a really good relationship yeah with them. exactly that's right so you uh you briefly touched on you know education so you got I guess your education through your midwives for you yeah. know preparing for your birth and so on did you do any other birth prep did you read did you listen to podcasts as well yeah so I <laughs> very heavily dove into everything um yeah. pregnancy so I was listening yeah. to lots of podcasts. One of my favourites was the Australian Birth Stories. I yeah. couldn't get enough of it. Um, but also I did a hypnobirthing class. So um, we did, and again, something not just for myself but um, for my husband yeah. um, because, you know, a lot of pregnancy can feel a bit one-sided. So, yeah, and again, this was sort of around COVID time. So we had a very small class. It was only three couples and the teacher. And yeah, I found, you know, we did the breathing techniques. We looked at the pressure points, um, but we also went over a lot of information that, you know, maybe I had heard about or knew about, but Nick may not have been as aware. So um, it was great that we could sit down and do something together because our hospital at the time wasn't running Mm-hmm. their um birth classes so yeah I'm glad that we did something privately yeah and as you said you know that's what I've heard a lot about hypnobirthing is it's great for you as the birthing person to have the strategies have the tools and just go okay I can use that in labor I can you know I've got this resource or that one or this one but it's really really good for the partner to go oh okay that's how I can help my wife or my you know my partner whatever that's what I can do oh okay and they just learn so much about what's involved in birth because it's not just you have a contraction the baby comes out obviously there's a whole lot that happens you know before that so it's like and and as you said you know it can feel really one-sided like oh well what can I do when she's in pain because well yeah I don't really know and so that way they can really learn to step up as a birthing partner and really take on that role of, you know, supporting, whether it's emotionally, it's physically, it's, yeah, just providing that that whole support and just knowing what to do, I guess, and not just go, oh, I don't know what to do now. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. Totally. How was Nick feeling about, you know, the pregnancy and the birth? Was he excited? Was he a bit scared about, you know, like seeing you in pain or what was um, he like? I mean, no, I think we were both just so excited. And Nick got two siblings and they don't have any children. So all our experience was probably me looking at 
my sister-in-law and she yeah. had two very easy pregnancies, sort of yeah. comp- like very no complications, very, you know, very low intervention births. And, and you know, so did my mum. So, you know, the conversations yeah. I was having with my mum about how how I was birthed and how my brother came along. Yeah, mum was just like, oh, no, natural and, you know, you know, relatively short labours and, mm-hmm. you know, you two were here and, you know, she didn't have any epidurals or anything like that and neither did my sister-in-law. So in my mm-hmm. head I was like, you know, I was doing, once we got to term, you know, I was doing the gutter walking, you know, we were, I was eating the dates, I was drinking the raspberry yes. leaf tea, you know, I thought I was ticking all the boxes. So doing the affirmations, like, uh, yeah, yeah. We, I think Nick and myself, you know, we were both sort of quietly confident that um, we had done, you know, our research. We had confident in the people around us, in our midwives. <laughs> Again, I hadn't seen an OBGYN my whole pregnancy yeah. because, you know, everything was just going sort of to plan. I did have an extra scan at one point because. I was taking a baby aspirin due to the blood test came back with low Papa A. Um, so I did, um, I was taking aspirin with my pregnancy vitamin and I did have an extra scan. But other than that, everything was perfect. The tracking was all good when we had our ultrasounds. The, the fundal height, every time we did that, that was fine. So yeah, we were yeah we were excited and yeah I think Nick was yeah quite confident. So sorry, what did the blood test show that led you to take aspirin? It, it's like a low Papa A. Okay, is that your platelets or something? I'm not even sure now. I don't even really remember anyone really explaining. Actually, okay. I think it's a hormone expressed from the placenta, but I didn't have any of the other risk factors. So they weren't really worried about anything. And I think we, my memory is a little bit bad now, but I'm pretty sure that was something we found out sort of early. So maybe around the 12 week mark, but yeah, it wasn't really spoken about again. And I stayed on the aspirin through the pregnancy and yeah. Perfect. So you kind of alluded to it, but what birth preferences did you have or how did you envision your birth then? Were you preparing for a low intervention, maybe drug-free birth? Yeah, yeah. I had had the birth ball at home. I had the TENS machine. Yes. I planned to, you know, stay at home for as long as I could. Mm -hmm. But yes, Violet had other plans. So we mm-hmm. actually didn't know vi- the sex of Violet, so she yep. was going to be a surprise. I went into early labour two days prior to her due date, and it was an afternoon, and I remember starting to feel the contractions and being really excited. Also, sort of not knowing if it was contractions because oh. I was getting most of the pain in my back. And I remember thinking, oh, I thought I would be getting more discomfort in the front. I thought this was Mm going to be, you know, a bit more like period pain. And I was just, I'd done a couple of laps of the block and I was feeling a bit tired and I was like, all right, I need to just relax and take this bit slow because I knew it was going to be sort of slow. I'd already called and spoke to one of the midwives and she said, yep, just keep, you know, calling in and letting me know how you're going. And if you're worried, like we're here, blah, blah, blah. So we did end up going in and Mm -hmm. I was like two centimetres dilated. But at that stage, that's when we worked out that because of the pain and Mm -hmm. 
where we were palpating that Violet was most likely posterior, which she was. So they did some saline injections and we stayed for a few hours and then we came home to labour at home. So that was one afternoon and then the next day, so that night didn't get much sleep. (laughs) Um, But again, really excited, you know, knowing that, you know, every you know, every contraction, we were sort of getting a little bit closer. Um, I was trying to make sure Nick was really well fed and he had his sleep because I thought at least, you know, I wasn't feeling great and not sleeping well and not really eating a lot, but I was hydrating. So I was Mm -hmm. like, at least one of us can be, you know, 100% so he can be supporting me. And then the Saturday, we basically, I put a cooking show on the TV I was on the bur- I was on the bouncing ball. I was just bouncing in front of the TV, drinking lots of water, and then it was just before midday, and I started getting in the shower, and I had the water on my back, and then just after lunch, I called the midwives, and I was like, "All right, I think I've done as much as I can at home." And that car ride to the hospital felt like forever, and it was sort of the afternoon when we got there, and by that stage, I was seven centimeters, so. Um, yeah I was really excited they ran the bath and I got straight into the bath and I remember my student midwife was there holding my hand she had my water there for me and um, Mm -hmm. she sort of said like you know you might slow down like with the contractions and things but we'll just see how you go Mm -hmm. and I was in there for a couple of hours and then we got out and my back was just I just remember how sore my back was getting and I really Mm -hmm. wanted some like pressure on my back. So we were using some heat packs and also just like my husband, like manual pressure on my back. Mm -hmm. Um, And also just trying to use a bit of gravity. I was, didn't really, I was by this stage feeling pretty sore and pretty tired, but I really wanted to find a position that I could sort of last a little bit longer in so you know yeah. was trying with the bed and you know there was a stool and then I was using the step of the bath and a few things but basically my water still hadn't broken and by mm-hmm. that stage I was nine centimeters yeah. and then they decided or maybe I can't remember if I asked or if they asked me but I do remember um, one of my midwives broke my water for me mm-hmm. and Something that I didn't realize is that once your waters break, they just continue <laughs> because I just had this warm trickling sensation that just didn't stop. And I sort of was like, oh, it, it's not like, again, I had listened to people's birth stories and, you know, you yeah. talk about the breaking of waters. Like I thought that happened, you know, quite quickly, but um it's not just one big gush and then you're done. Like it just continually was trickling and I just had this like wet, warm, wet. So every time I was like changing positions, I was was sort of looking at um, my student midwife like, sorry, and I like we had like a pad over here and then we had a towel over here and and then I was leaning on like I had my leg up here on the bed and, yeah, so I look back on it and it's pretty funny that I was so worried about this, you know, my waters being everywhere but like, I just, yeah, it, it, it's um, something to have a giggle about. But um, then by that stage, I think it was about nine o'clock and I'm just trying to think. I, I needed to push. 
I remember Mm -hmm. the feeling came top to toe straight over my body. It was like this wash of feeling that I was like, and I remember looking at one of the midwives and asking like, oh, I need to push. And she was like, okay, like, that's okay. You're okay. And I was like, oh no, I I really need to push. And she's like, that's okay. Like, if that's where you're ready, if you're ready. And I was almost asking for permission. Like, I'm like, am I doing this? Is this okay? And yes, I do remember begging my husband. I was like, I I can't do this. And he's like, no, no, you're okay. You're okay. And again, still just not knowing where I wanted to be. I was, you know, still tossing up with trying to feel comfortable. I was, you know, head leaning over the bed. And then next minute I was, you know, getting down low. And then the next minute I was, you know, and then, yeah, I started also asking for some pain relief. I was like, Mm you know, I need this pain relief. I'm not feeling great. We used the gas for a little bit, but it was making me feel a little bit. I mean, it was good for a little, like a very short period, but I do remember not feeling great. But again, probably to do with the pain, probably to do with not have eaten. I hadn't eaten much. Um, Mm -hmm. And also just, I think it was part of that transition thing. I just wasn't, you know, so I don't blame the gas. It was probably just, but I did end up um, asking for an epidural. I got an epidural. So I had that in between contractions and instantly felt a bit better. I was very lucky that it eliminated the pain, but I could still move my legs. So we opted for, um, we had like a bar over the end of the bed and I yeah. could rest my feet. It looked like a soccer goal. And I remember laughing, thinking it was so yeah. funny that they're hooking up this device. And I was like, oh, my goodness, what like, what am I going to do? But it was great. Um, yeah. We were pushing. And then I got to the point where my midwife sort of said to me, you know, have a look in the mirror. And I was like, oh, my goodness. And she took my hand and I could feel Violet's head right there and I was so so excited but it also that was sort of when things started to sort of change a little bit one of the midwives left and come back with the registrar and I do remember him introducing himself asked how I was feeling had a little check down there and said oh you know you know I'll be back and and sort of didn't say anything and then a little while later, I remember we started talking about options just because by that stage, we started saying, you know, sh- she looked a little bit stuck. We still didn't know actually it was a girl, obviously, because she wasn't out. But yeah, they were sort of saying, you know, baby's stuck, baby's okay. We had the monitors on. By that stage, I was so fatigued. Violet was actually presenting. She didn't tuck her head. She was coming out sort of eyebrows so I did ask about like other ways of getting her out without because of course they started floating the idea of going upstairs for a c-section yeah um and I did say you know is there any other option like mm-hmm. you know I realized I wasn't going to get her out by pushing but you know was yeah. there anything else but mm-hmm. as far as I remember they were reluctant to do anything because of her brow presentation so yeah they they couldn't use you know um suction or forceps or anything like that just because of yeah her position so by this stage it was like midnight and we went upstairs and had the c-section and it wasn't until so they cut me open and brought violet out and it was a very excited you know little cheer from the room and then they said she's a girl and i remember Straight away, um, my husband was like, started calling her Violet. We had already picked out one 
boy's name and one girl's name. And yeah, that was just the best thing in the world because, you know, while I was laying there, you know, my midwife had brought, by this age, I'd had a change of midwife. So I had my second midwife come and help me. That was really exciting as well, because obviously I got to see both my midwives throughout my my laboring and, and birthing. But yeah, it was after Violet was born, my midwife, husband and Violet went down to like recovery or maternity and it was when they had finished suturing or they'd finished closing me up and we were mm-hmm. going to move from sort of like the plank you're on in surgery onto a bed and mm-hmm. that's when I started feeling pain we started having I started having some difficulties so like my blood pressure my temperature all of that sort of started going a bit haywire and um yeah that was when they realized that I was still bleeding. Wait, and... wait. So so you're still in theater at this point. So obviously Correct. Violet's born. When Violet's born, everything's fine. You're you're yeah. happy. You're, yeah. you know, yeah. like it's fantastic. It's Finally ecstatic. she's out. Yeah. And um, as you said, actually, uh, something I wanted to mention, because you mentioned she was uh, brow presenting, you know, brow presentation, which I've um, I've actually had one other woman on the podcast that had that, which was Hannah, episode 25. And she said, she's a midwife herself, and she said, it's actually, it's a really difficult presentation uh, in terms of having a, a vaginal birth. And she was lucky to have one because the registrar was, was trained and was skilled enough to be confident in uh, delivering with, I think she had uh, the use of maybe forceps, if I'm remembering right. But otherwise, yeah, it is a highly likely case of having a cesarean just because of the presentation. And if the care provider isn't feeling confident in their skills to actually deliver vaginally, then yeah, it is usually a C-section. So at this point, baby's born. She's with your husband. Amazing. And you're feeling great. You've been sutured. And then you're still in theatre when things started not going so great. Yeah, yeah. And um, I started to feel the atmosphere in the room change. So they obviously saw that your blood pressure dropping and probably your heart rate increasing and things like that. So they could see clinically something was up. I um, started shaking because I was really cold. And then I was vomiting as well. I had a lovely nurse on either side you know they were looking after me holding my hand they put like a water blanket on me to keep my temperature stable and then I remember them hooking up extra things to I was getting an extra cannula that's right and they were putting Mm -hmm. in extra I think it might have been blood or blood products or something to help with the bleeding I was a little bit hypoxic so I was sort of there for most of it but also missing some parts of the conversation so I didn't hear that the plan was to take me to CT, um, mm-hmm. but that was the original plan to find where the, the bleeding was coming from. But I did remember once I had stopped vomiting, that's when they sort of started talking to me sort of one-on-one being like, hey, you're losing a lot of blood. We're doing our best. I did hear them calling in another obstetrician gynecologist and I heard them calling in for more blood and more blood products and the anesthetist that was behind me he started calling in his superior as well and and yeah that's when I started realizing like okay there's a lot happening and I was sort of there was a clock to my left which I kept sort of trying to keep a track of but sort of Vite was born at a little bit after 1am and by 3 
3am, I was like pretty spent and feeling really rubbish. And um, that's when the obstetrician that um, delivered Violet sort of popped his head over and said, mm-hmm. we're going to do a hysterectomy. And I pleaded no, but it obviously wasn't like, it wasn't a full conversation because yeah, it was a life-saving hysterectomy. So mm-hmm. they were just doing what they had to do. And yeah. um, but I do remember very, very clearly looking at my midwife, uh, looking at sorry, one of the nurses on my right hand side and saying to her, like, I want my mum. And I was crying and she said, We will look after you, like I'm gonna be here when you wake up, I'll be there, like I've got your hand, like, can you squeeze my hand? Um, and that was sort of the last thing I remember before I woke up in um, the ICU. Wow, that's... So what had happened was a, a postpartum yeah. hemorrhage, um, mm-hmm. which resulted in a hysterectomy. When they did the hysterectomy, they actually caught one of my ureters in a suture. So they also put a stent, um, they called a urologist in and put a little stent in there, which is basically like something that holds open the, the yeah. tube. So like a like a tube itself just holding open yeah. the ureter. But yeah, so it was, Nick was oblivious to this and they said, obviously they went down and said that I'd had a bleed and luckily I'd done a little bit of, thanks to my midwives, I'd done a little bit of collecting of my colostrum. So baby Violet had some colostrum to start with for her first feeds. But yeah, so Violet's first feeds were a finger feed by my husband of the colostrum, which was lovely and like a very special thing for him to share with Violet. And then, yeah, he was sort of told a couple of hours later that there'd been complications and that I'd been put into a coma just so that my recovery would be better because uh, in total I lost 11 litres of blood. So I lost my body volume like twice. I went into something called DIC shock where your body doesn't have enough clotting factors and it doesn't know what to do. Um, So basically Mm. they were just putting in blood and my body was just bleeding because it wasn't clotting. Wow. That's wow. The the thing you went through is just, I don't think I have the words for it. It, It's absolutely insane that like everything was fine. And then you had a bleed, which happens, you know, postpartum hemorrhages happen, but obviously you had a very severe postpartum hemorrhage, which, you know, you needed blood. And then, as you said, because usually an average woman who is not pregnant has about five litres, when you're pregnant, you've got more, obviously, to support, you know, a growing baby. So you've got probably about, you know, six-ish, and you lost 11. Wow. They actually ran out of blood at the hospital and had to fly it in on the care flight helicopter to yeah to keep it coming wow and and see that's where i want to say if you're listening it's super important to donate blood if you can Thank if you're you. able to yeah. it is so important to donate blood for people like like you Kirsty who require them in, in an absolute life-saving wow. emergency surgery it doesn't take long i used to donate blood i can't at the moment because i'm breastfeeding and postpartum but it actually doesn't take long it's not painful you know it's like doing a blood test except the needle stays in for a little bit longer Altogether, the actual blood drawing part takes probably the most I've been on the chair for with the needle has been 10 minutes. And it was only that because I felt 
a little bit faint that day. Obviously, I was really stressed and so on. But it's actually super easy, super simple. You get a snack afterwards. That's the best part. I love it. It is life-saving and you can save the lives of a new mom who may not have survived if she didn't get the blood. You're saving the lives of cancer patient, of roadside, you know, accidents, of anyone, children, mom, dad, you know, you're saving the life of someone who desperately needs plasma, blood, whatever it is. Even um, people that have been burnt, they require plasma, they require blood sometimes. It is life-saving. And if we all donated at least once, we would be helping to build up this blood bank actually so that it's they never, you know, the Australian blood bank uh, doesn't have to keep doing call-outs to say that they are very, very low on bloods, especially, especially if you're O negative we definitely need your blood, but we yeah, need all the bloods you, anyway, Louisa. regardless. That's such an important message. And um, I think something, again, we take granted for, but yes, something that I used to do before having children, my mum's very good at giving blood as well. And my husband's very good at, they love to give him a call for his plasma. He's got great plasma, yep. but yes, a very, very, very important message. If you can, a very easy thing you can do to yes, save, save people's lives. Yeah, I think for every every time you donate blood, you're helping three lives. So honestly, if you can do it, it doesn't take that long. Uh, plasma takes longer, but, you know, you still get a comfortable chair. You get time to yourself, potentially. It might be, uh, you know, me time away from the kids. <laughs> and and like you, said, um, you get that milkshake or you get that snack afterwards yes. as well. Yes. And you feel yes. good. And exactly. You feel amazing. And what I loved is when I was donating blood, they started doing any time they'd use your blood, they would send you a text message to say that it's been used in, you know, whatever hospital. And I love that they told you that afterwards because it really puts it in perspective. You know, you usually I donate blood and within the week my bag would be sent to uh, well, I was in Queensland at the time, so it'd be used in like far north Queensland or Brisbane or something. And it puts it in perspective that it, it is actually super useful. And even if you don't know your blood type, you can still donate. You can tell them, I don't know my blood type. They can actually test it for you after your first donation. So you can actually get to know your blood type. Yeah. And um, yeah, they will take every blood type. They're super friendly, those nurses there. Honestly, it doesn't take long. They have mobile um, services as well. So if you live in a small town, they usually have the blood bank coming every three to six months, you know, based on the town. And, yeah, honestly, it is life-saving. For people like you, Kirsty. it's absolutely life-saving. So if you can, you're listening, please think about it. Go on the website. I'll put the links in the show notes anyway. Yeah, it doesn't take long, and it's it's mind-blowingly amazing to do it. So, yeah, totally agree. So at some point, Nick realized that you probably would have been, you know, you should have been out of surgery like soon and you were not. Did he know what was happening to you? No, no, he didn't. So um, it wasn't until sort of the early hours of the morning that he realized they came down and they asked Nick to um, ring my parents and ring his parents and just have some support people there and obviously my family there. So my mum, so I'd been texting my mum throughout and yep. my mum was actually, when Nick called her, was in the car park of the hospital waiting because <laughs> she, we told her that I was going in for the C-section 
and then she didn't get any messages back. So she had gone back to sleep and woke up really early and thought, oh, I haven't got a message. Something's a little bit strange. I'll just drive in. <laughs> so she had actually driven to the hospital and was sitting in, um, she'd left my dad at home and she drove in and she was sitting in the car park. And then when Nick called, yeah, she come in and then, yeah, dad come in and then, yeah, Nick's parents, Veronica had actually, we'd left the colostrum at home. So Nick's mum had actually gone past our house, picked up the colostrum, dropped it into the hospital and drove home. And then, so yeah, the same thing when Nick called, she came straight in and um, yeah, that's when one of the doctors came down. The OBGYN that did the hysterectomy came down and sort of explained what had happened and that I would look a little bit different when they saw me in ICU because they had given me all of the blood products and lots of fluids and things. I was very puffy and very, very pale. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, he just did his best to sort of explain to my parents, you know, and my husband, you know, what I was going to look like. So, yeah, I was really lucky again. My midwives knew my wishes to breastfeed. So they were actually hand expressing and sort of milking my breasts from the get-go. Because I had such a large postpartum hemorrhage, we weren't sure if I would be able to breastfeed once I had awoken and sort of started to try and breastfeed Violet. My milk actually ended up coming in. So it came in five days after I woke up and I was asleep for two days in ICU. So it was seven days post her birth. But yeah, my milk did come in and in the beginning we were supplementing, like we were doing top-ups with formula and then I also ended up using a shield because I did get damaged nipples. But by the time Violet was maybe three months old, so yeah, like 12 or 14 weeks old, she was exclusively breastfed and I was pumping as well and getting some milk put aside for, yeah, Nick was helping me with bottles. And yeah, I can very proudly say I breastfed Violet until she was 14 months old. And she only sort of, again, she was eating food by that stage, um, but we were sort of still breastfeeding um, for comfort. So like mornings and nights. And she actually only stopped because I started my round of IVF for, mm. to make some embryos. So um, we did a round of IVF and she stopped. And then mm-hmm. we did back-to-back. Um, so she started, once I was off the drugs, she started breastfeeding again for like two weeks. And then once I started the drugs again, she actually stopped that second time and she didn't start again. Yeah. But yeah, that just goes to show, like, she was a very happy little little breastfeeder. She, yeah, loved the yeah. food. It was great. It was a really good experience. Wow. That's an incredible story. I mean, you glanced over the fact that for two days you were in a coma, obviously not by choice, and, well, you didn't see your baby for two days and your, I'm sure your, your family, Nick, would have been really worried about you and, like, how you were going to wake up and... When you woke up, did you remember what had happened? Yeah, I could remember everything. I remembered everyone's names. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was very, very fresh in my mind. It was once I had woken up, Nick and my mum, and they had Violet in the little bassinet. And I remember the nurses and a few of the doctors coming past and, and, you know, standing at the end of the bed and they're like, wow, like you're awake. And I'm like chatting away. And I remembered everyone's names and everyone's like, 
it's so bizarre that you remember so much and I was like oh yeah like yeah I could remember a few of the conversations because they had just been called back in they'd obviously been at the hospital gotten home off their shift and then they got a call back in and I remember um, a few of them were talking about they pulled in to get takeaway and yeah I was you know I was recounting these stories and they're like how do you remember all this and I'm like oh yeah because yeah obviously it just yes sits in your yeah. mind and, but yeah so I spent the, the two days in the ICU and then I think once I was awake I just wanted to be with my baby and my husband yeah. so I just didn't stop sort of pestering the nurses I'm like I'm doing really well like I'm okay like I'm awake now like I you know I can go down to maternity and they're like oh you know just you've got to they think they kept me for maybe like six or eight hours in the ICU yeah. once I was awake um, and then after that, they were very happy to send me down to maternity. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was just because when you're up in the ICU, the lights stay on all the time. And mm-hmm. um, it meant that my husband and Violet were on a different floor. Like maternity is a different floor. They would bring Violet up in the bassinet. But also because I had all the, the things connected to me, it was really hard for me to hold Violet. So sooner I was, at, you know, disconnected from all the because I had like a, a line in my neck and I had all these drips and um, I had the oxygen and things like that. So as soon as I could take all that off um, and be in, in maternity, I knew it would be easier for me to hold my baby and just, yeah, all be together. So, um, yeah, I, I was not in ICU very long whilst I was away. And then we ended up staying in hospital for I think it was a total of 10 days after mm-hmm. Violet was born just to make sure that, I could get up on my feet and that I was comfortable showering, that, yeah, my milk had come in, that I wasn't in too much pain that I could manage at home by myself. So, yeah, we had 10 days in hospital and then we got to bring her home. Wow, what a start into motherhood for you and for Nick, obviously, and for Violet as well. What a story. So when you woke up and, you know, you're finally in maternity, you're finally with Violet and so on, so obviously you must feel really happy because finally Violet's here. She's a girl. It's amazing. But you've also had a hysterectomy. And I, I'm not sure if at that point you had spoken with Nick about, you know, what your family was going to look like, you know, how many children you wanted together and so on. But I'm guessing at this point it's, you know, I mean, we'll talk about the transplant in a second, but at this point you probably don't know that a uterus transplant is a thing. So were you grieving? you know, the the loss of your uterus? Yeah, it was, It. I think I was putting on a bit of a brave face. Um, mm-hmm. And I think everyone was probably aware of that in hospital. Like, yeah. you know, I did have a few of the midwives mention surrogacy. And the when I had my hysterectomy, I did keep my ovaries. Um, They yeah. were fine. And, you know, the doctor had explained, that, you know, that was all fine. And that was okay for me, you know, I'd be able to go on and do IVF treatment and things like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, in my head, I understood the anatomy. I knew what I had lost. I knew that I'd lost my uterus and, and just my uterus. Um, mm-hmm. They did say because of the extensive blood loss that my ovaries may have slightly been damaged because there might have been a blood flow issue. So that was in the back of my mind. We hadn't investigated that in my head yeah I I understood that I would hopefully be able to harvest eggs via IVF and make embryos with my husband but I would not be able to carry another pregnancy so I did have a couple of people mention yeah 
yeah, surrogacy and having someone else carry carry a baby for us. Yeah, we hadn't really spoken about, you know, the birth or anything like that yet. So that sort of came, you know, we definitely started talking about it quite early. I, I did express to my family, like, you know, this isn't it. Like, you know, as much as I was working through the trauma of what happened with Violet's birth, I definitely was still talking to people and being like, no, I definitely still want to extend my family. Like, but yes, correct. I I had never heard of a uterus transplant. You know, all I thought, all we really were thinking about was adoption and surrogacy. It sort of wasn't until the six month mark that I started doing the research, and that's when I stumbled across the uterus transplant clinical trial. How do you stumble across a uterus <laughs> transplant clinical <laughs> trial, right? I mean, you said you were doing research, so that makes sense. But I mean, yeah. how do you stumble upon that? Like, because so, you um, don't know it exists. No, yeah. So I was in a couple of different Facebook groups. So I was in a hysterectomy Facebook group um, yeah. and a birth trauma, the ABTA. And then I was sort of looking for someone that looked like me, like I sort of, you know, I was looking for a community and I think someone posted in one of those groups about the uterus transplant clinical trial and that's when I sort of started going searching for it. But also (laughs) in my head I had started to think, well, you know, we do all these other transplants, organ transplants, you know, I wonder if they do do uterus transplants. So when I found the website, I could tell that it was a little bit old and it hadn't been updated for a while, but there was an email address on there. So I had just put Violet down for a sleep and I found the website and I had the email address, but there was two things. I needed my GP to fill it out and I needed mm-hmm. someone to be my donor. Yeah, I just I picked up my phone and I rang my mum. She was at work. So this is the middle of the day, just on a random day. I'd never spoken about it before. And Mm -hmm. I rang my mum and I just said, hey, mum, you know, would you consider having a hysterectomy if I could have your uterus? You know, she really didn't ask that many questions. She was just like, yeah, sure. Yep, no worries. I I do remember. So she agreed to it first. And then she said, I'll speak to your father. But she definitely agreed to it first. That was my first hurdle. And then I got off the phone from her and I basically rang my GP straight away. And I'd already seen my GP for appointments, like my six-week check. And Violet was having her immunizations and seeing my my GP as well. So I just booked a a follow-up appointment with him. And, yeah, that's where it all started. Oh, my God. You just... You picked up your phone. So obviously with this clinical trial, you needed a uterus, which was the big thing because it wasn't a uterus from a random donor. It was going to be an, I think it's called an altruistic donation where it's someone usually from your close circle who needs to be a match as well, obviously with blood type and so on, um, who was going to donate a uterus, their uterus to you. And so you just rang up your mom and you said, would, would you donate your uterus to me? And your mom said, yes. I mean, what a legend. And I tell you, Alicia, she didn't ask very many questions. She was just she, like, she was just sort of like, oh, yeah. So she agreed to it and then was like, oh, I'll speak to your father. And then 
yeah, there wasn't. I'm honestly, there wasn't very many questions. Well, so you hear about this trial, you found your uterus in in your mom, yep. which is, you know, I mean, we're going to talk about it in a second, but it's your mom's uterus where you come from. Yes, that carried her grandson, me yes. being, you know, Henry, your son. Wow, science! I. I know. It's I know. absolutely it's incredible. It's, yeah, it's it's amazing. And it's funny you mentioned because you said you um for this clinical trial they worked with um the Swedish team, which is actually that was I heard about a uterus transplant being done in Sweden. It was I think it was first done in Sweden. I do not remember when, but that's how I heard of it maybe a year ago or something that that um that clinical trial they did in Sweden was then they did it in France, which is where I'm from. Yeah. And so that's how I first heard of a uterus transplant and it was done in France and also this mom went on to have another baby, which was amazing because she was actually born without a uterus actually in that story. So that was a, a whole different thing. But that's amazing that, yeah. you know, Australia is you know, so like there's researchers, there's doctors out there that are really willing to advance science and to really show that we can transplant, you know, live people in altruistic donations. We can we can basically implant more than just kidneys or livers, which is what's being done at the moment, you know, for, for a living person. Yeah, well, I mean, there's obviously heart donations and so on, but that's not an altruistic donation usually because you kind of die when you donate your heart. Um, <laughs> yeah. But in terms of altruistic donation where, you know, the donor and the recipient stay alive, you, we're talking yep. about kidneys and livers, that's amazing that, you know, there's researchers out there just wanting to really help women who were born without a uterus or had some form of, you know, malformation, genetic problems or and or a life-saving hysterectomy like you to still be able to have a uterus, to be able to expand their family or to start one. That's amazing. Uh, Max Brandstrom was actually in Australia when it was, he was working in oncology and a young woman was having to have a hysterectomy due to a cancer diagnosis. And she was one of the first, she, she said to him, like, I want to carry a baby. Can you do a uterus transplant? And he was like, oh, no, like, no, that's not a thing. But that was his inspiration. She, an Australian woman, um, I think it was, I think it was in South Australia and I think it was, yeah, quite some few years ago, and yeah. that's when he went back to Sweden and they started doing animal trials first. Yeah. Um, but it's just incredible, Max and his team, that's what they do now. they sharing information and travelling around. And um, so Max actually did my surgery, being the first, and filmed it. They, they filmed it with the team so that they could use it for teaching in the future. Well. You have a famous uterus. Even your uterus is famous. I love it. Yeah, oh, that's amazing. Um, it's incredible. And I just think, like we keep saying, you know, science, but it's, it takes some amazing people because now, yeah, they're sharing the information with other teams yeah. so that it's possible for other women. It's just, yeah, yeah. it's in, very cool. No, exactly. That's right. And so I guess now let's dive into what happened, like how – did how did we come to you know be talking about Henry's birth now you know so you mentioned that you did IVF so to be a part of the clinical trial part of the the criteria was 
that we had to have five embryos frozen to be considered. I hadn't done any form of IVF before, so (laughs) I was not really informed on what needed to happen. So we did our, our research. We spoke to the nurses from the Royal Women's Hospital. Yeah, we um, did two rounds of IVF and yes. we both times got a reasonable amount of, of eggs. But yes. something that I didn't realise is that, yes, you can get a good amount of eggs, but each step of the process of the fertilization, you actually lose a couple of eggs each time in each different stage. But luckily, um, the first time we ended up with three healthy embryos and the second time we ended up with three embryos. Um, So um, we ended up with six, which was, I mean, we only needed five, so it was, you know, plus one extra. And, um, yeah, we were really, really lucky. Wow. How did you find doing IVF? You know, I mean, at the time you've got a toddler, it's obviously, it's a lot of strain on your body with the hormones and so on. How was that? I'm glad that I'm not afraid of needles because holy dooly, you um, are doing a lot of needles. Again, I think I was a little bit naive going into the process because holy dooly, I was emotional. (laughs) Um, But again, excited definitely sort of trying to keep that the bigger picture at the end at the forefront of my mind because and I was actually a little bit sad as well because I was enjoying my breastfeeding journey with my daughter but in the end it was actually really nice because as much as you know she sort of self it was sort of like a self-weaning process I wasn't saying no she couldn't have it she was more saying oh no I you know I don't know if it was a tasting or what it was but um it it actually you know it wasn't too bad um and yeah it um I probably I wouldn't wish IVF on anyone um because it's not for the faint-hearted there's a lot to it but you know I'm glad it's an option I'm glad it's out there I'm glad it's a thing but yeah so we we still have five embryos in the freezer which I guess we'll have to talk about what we'll do with those in the future but yeah that was the sort of the first step of the criteria having those embryos and also having mum as our donor. Wow and so something I heard um, from you know the other transplant that happened in France actually was it was the same scenario where the the woman had her mum as her donor and one thing she did is she asked her brother's or you know her I don't remember she had siblings she asked her siblings if they were happy for their mom to donate her uterus to her mostly because obviously by the mom donating her uterus she was undergoing a very long surgery which obviously all surgeries come with risks and so therefore she needed to know that all her siblings were on board and understood the potential consequences even though the mom you know it's her decision to donate her uterus was it something you spoke about with you know your your mom your dad your brother Uh, I think you've got one brother yes I've got a brother yeah it was you know a a full family decision because like you said no surgery comes without risk but the donation path of donating a uterus you know it's a it's a, a very long surgery and you know, even when you get out of surgery, you've got to take it easy. You need support. Yeah. So, yeah, we were really lucky that 
yeah, my dad was really supportive. My brother and his wife were really supportive. My husband's family were had yeah were all very supportive and excited for us. Um, but also again, it's not just family. It's you know my workplace. I was going to have to take quite a bit of time off work mm. for surgery, even leading up to being accepted into the trial. You know, there's lots of blood tests. There's yeah. lots of appointments. There's you know we had trips to Sydney. We we're not based in Sydney, my family, so you know, we would have to fly to Sydney for the day or for a couple of days. So yeah, mum's work was amazing. My work was amazing. Yeah, we were fully supported by the people around us. And again, like, yeah, I had my great GP. I was seeing a psychologist as well after Violet's birth, and she was sort of talking me through things. So yeah, yeah, that in itself, you know, that that was a lot, even prior to having the transplant yeah of course because it it took a while from the time that you found out about this clinical trial to you getting I guess in touch with them to then doing IVF and to then still as you said jumping through some hoops doing test blood test I'm guessing you would have had maybe ultrasounds and other yeah yeah and I also had an exploratory laparoscopy so um the cameras Uh everywhere just to make sure you know, because Violet's birth was an emergency cesarean and because things had happened the way they did, Dr. Deans just wanted to make sure that everything was okay in there. So yeah, it was, I think I did the, it was, I had the exploratory surgery maybe in like the October or the November. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was sort of one of the final things before yeah. we, we were, you know, finally accepted. And then it was sort of like, you know, we didn't lock in a date. We were accepted into the clinical trial, um, but we didn't lock a date in for surgery until sort of the week before Christmas. And then, yeah, it was crazy that um, surgery ended up being, yeah, the 10th of January, 2023. Wow. So, So was the laparoscopy the very last thing to, you know, really put you into this clinical trial was it the last you know hope to then have the acceptance into it yeah I'm trying to remember I can't remember if it was the laparoscopy or we did a final matching tissue matching test so we (laughs) we knew we were the same blood type but you also do like a tissue matching thing and I'm trying to remember what was first or second but I do remember those two things were sort of happening around at the same time so that tissue matching and the laparoscopy were like sort of the final things we were doing prior to yeah setting a date for surgery wow that's so when you're going through all these you know blood tests and and all these you know things to do are you realizing that like you're helping science. I mean, obviously your goal is to have, you know, another baby, but are you realizing that you're helping to advance science and to really help other women out there? Yeah, that was one of the things that mum and I were really cognizant of that, you know, I re- yes, I really, really wanted to carry another pregnancy and have another child, but if it didn't work or yeah. if, yeah, we did go through the surgery and, you know, at the end of the day, I wasn't able to carry a baby or we needed to do a hysterectomy again to remove the uterus or, you know, if something happened, mum and I kept saying to each other, like, you know, it's all going to be worth it. We're here for the clinical trial. We've just got to give it a go. Yeah, that was something that, yeah, we were definitely kept trying to remind ourselves that 
you know, we just take it step by step. And, you know, if there's setbacks, there's setbacks. But um, in mm-hmm. the end, we're, you know, it's for the clinical trial and we'll just see how we go. Wow. So it's Christmas Eve now and you're getting a phone call saying, yeah, let's do a surgery on the 10th of January. What is that phone call like? How are you feeling afterwards? Yeah, it was It was all hands on deck because it was like, yep. all right, this is, this is definitely happening. How are we logistically going to make this run as smooth as possible? So it was like, how are we getting to Sydney? Who's coming to Sydney? So, you know, my mum and my dad, and then it was going to be me and Nick. And then what, what are we going to do with Violet? Like, is she coming with us? Who's, yeah. So it was, oh, we had to take time off work. Who's going to look after the cat while we've got time off work? Um, So, yeah, it basically, once we decided, it was like all hands on deck to get it happening and trying to organise like where we would stay in Sydney, what our recovery would look like because, again, they weren't really sure how long we would be in hospital for. But, yeah, so basically, again, I think that was helpful because it gave us something to do. So we could yeah. sort of stop thinking about the actual surgery and we could just yeah. sort of focus on like, yeah, there was there was things that needed to be done and, yeah, we could tick one thing off at a time. And my dad drove us all down. We were all in one car together and we had a road trip from Coffs to Sydney and um, we arrived two days before surgery because yeah. we were admitted to hospital the day before. So we went in the day before. We had some final tests. So I had like a contrast dye, some sort of scan and we had some blood tests and yeah, we ate some hospital food for dinner and it was like, (laughs) mum knew that she was going to be up early in the morning. She was going in at like seven o'clock. So she had a wake up call at like six o'clock and yeah, the morning of the surgery, I remember the nurses waking mum up and we were in a shared room. So mum and I could see each other and um across from each other and I jumped up out of bed and ran over to mum and climbed into her bed and we sort of just lay there together for sort of like I don't know 15 20 minutes and we're sort of just chatting you know like are you nervous are you nervous what are you going to eat when we can eat it because we were fasting it was like what are we going to eat when we can eat again yeah yeah so we were sort of just chatting away in bed and mum was allowed to brush her teeth and have a sip of water and I remember Yana coming up to our room and she was like she came to get us and she was like you ready Michelle you ready to go in and she was like yep and then I got to walk down with um, Yana down to theatres and then I sort of had to stand on the other side of the door and give mum a kiss and cuddle and wave goodbye and then I walked back up to my room and rang my dad and my husband and said yep mum's gone um you can head into head in whenever you're ready and then, yeah, so mum's surgery was long. It was sort of 10 to 12 hours. And then my surgery was sort of the six-hour, six, seven-hour mark. But we didn't. I didn't wake up until midnight that night mm-hmm. and I woke up in recovery. And I remember the first question I said when I, when I saw Dr. Deans, I was like, do I have a uterus? Like, did it go okay? Did it, did it go well? And she was like, yep, yep. And then there was all these, I remember there was all these other nurses and people sort of doing things. And I remember I was trying to listen to everyone, but I was just so exhausted. 
yeah. and I just had to close my eyes. And then the next thing I remember was I was being wheeled back into our shared room and my mm-hmm. husband was there and my dad was there and I looked over and mum was in her bed and she sort of just gave me a thumbs up, then kissed my husband goodbye and him and my dad went home. And, yeah, that was that was our big day. That was, yeah, the day that we, we got I got my uterus and, um, yeah. Wow, that's that's incredible. You got your mom's uterus. Like, wow, that's it's like family heritage. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It's I wouldn't want anyone else's uterus. It's the best uterus. Yeah, it's done a really good job housing yeah. my looking after me, my brother, and now baby Henry. Wow. And so after the surgery, I'm guessing you and your mom recovered okay you know in as much as you've had you both have had really extensive surgery and so on and you you're probably still taking anti-rejection medication I'm guessing correct yeah and so what happened after that so you you know you went back to your life and you're obviously trying to recover from this surgery but you're still in touch with the team at the Royal Women's Hospital because the aim was to transfer an embryo right yeah yeah I got my period sort of 30 days post, I think it was, was it 30 days, 20? Anyway, it it was quite soon after um, the the transplant. Um, So that was a great sign that everything was working well. Um, I was having really frequent blood tests to monitor any rejection drugs. And then there was a conversation about when we would like to schedule a embryo transfer um, because Mm -hmm. I had to wean off one anti-rejection drug and have yeah. a washout period of that drug before I could have an embryo transfer. So we did start talking about embryo transfers, I feel like quite early on in the piece. And yeah, that all went well. The drug was out of my system. I was on a different sort of anti-rejection drug. Everything was quite stable and yeah. we did an embryo transfer in the April. And then we had that two-week wait to see if things were successful. And I did the blood test and Dr. Deans gave us a call and we were. We were very, very, very lucky. And that first embryo transfer ended up being positive and that gave us baby Henry. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Okay, okay. Let's take a step back. So you've just had a uterus transplant you're weaning off your anti-rejection medication to then be able to have a pregnancy you transfer three months after you've had this you know surgery and then you're pregnant oh my god but that's amazing like obviously it could it could not have taken just like in you know any case where you do assisted what is it called um like assisted reproduction you know it doesn't always take just like in a in a healthy pregnancy where you're trying naturally it doesn't always take it, it, and it worked for you first go did you know it had worked before did you feel it in you or no I think I was just the hard thing about all those hormones that you know when you even when you're doing the IVF and yeah. the egg, like the, when you're doing the egg harvesting all of the the symptoms are very similar so like the, the tender breast the emote like it, it all is very similar so I was trying not to read into too much my symptoms and I mean I was obviously trying to be super positive but at the same in the same sort of breath I was trying to be you know level-headed a bit realistic I was like 
you know, this may not work first go. It may be too soon for my body. Yeah. It might not just be this embryo. Like we'll just see yeah. how we go. You know, if this doesn't work, we'll try again, you know, straight away. But, you know, all fingers and toes were crossed that, you know, it was yeah. going to work the first time. And, yeah, it was such a shock and, yeah, just the best news we could have, you know, again, great news that, yeah, we wow. were pregnant. And um, side note, did you have any form of um, embryo testing to check that the embryo was, I guess, the best quality embryo, if that's the best way to put it? So yeah. they did grade them, but no, yes. we didn't do any sort of genetic testing, no. Mm -hmm. But, yes, wow. they did. Henry was the be the one that they, they, yeah, do the best one first. So, you know, that was that made me feel good. It was promising. But, yeah. um. Yeah, we didn't know. Yeah, yeah. So we had no, we had no idea what the sex of the embryo yeah. was either, yeah. um, because right. we don't do that in Australia. No. You don't choose. We just they just mm -mm. put the best one in. The scientists yeah. um, pick the best looking one. So I mean, yeah, the the, the probability was you know fifty fifty that it was going to work, yeah. and we were just yeah, we were just lucky. Wow. And so how was that first trimester? Because, well, in any pregnancy, the first trimester can be, you know, obviously miscarriages happen and so on, right? Um, did you take extra um, hormones, extra medication in that time? Were you highly, you know, like, did you have a lot of blood tests, ultrasound and so on to check how the pregnancy was evolving? Yeah. So I was on estrogen pessaries. So that can support pregnancy. I was still taking a pregnancy multivitamin plus all the medication I was already on. And then we did an ultrasound because I was going down to Sydney. So we did a ultrasound in Coffs just to make sure that the pregnancy, yes, we'd done the blood test, but we wanted to see a heartbeat. I did have some early spotting as well. So we were just you know being extra cautious so yeah. we did a, an ultrasound I want to say at maybe we did one early on when the spotting started and we got to yeah. see like the sack I remember yeah. there wasn't quite enough to see just yet and then mm -hmm. we did another one two weeks later and then when we did the two weeks later that's when we could see the heartbeat and could be reassured that it was in the right position, there was a heartbeat and everything was looking positive. Wow. And so with with this pregnancy, are you considered a high-risk pregnancy because obviously you've got a transplanted organ plus it's an IVF pregnancy? Correct, yeah. And, yeah, it's mainly because of that organ transplant yeah. and then the drugs that I'm on. So mm -hmm. they're looking for things like gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, all those fun things that come along with um, because I'm on a steroid, that's, uh -huh. yeah, it's the steroid plus all the anti-rejection drugs. Right, of course. So what model of care did you go through and did you therefore birth in the same hospital as you did with Violet? No, so I had a midwife and an obstetrician here, beautiful, beautiful midwife that was with me with Violet. So she already knew me, which was wonderful. And yes. an obstetrician gynecologist that had seen me, not during my pregnancy with Violet, but my post-care um, of mm -hmm. my hysterectomy and things like that. So I had them in Coffs Harbour. And then, yes, I was part of the MGP for the Royal Women's Hospital. So 
I was MGP plus being all the specialists as well. So I did end up getting, so in my first trimester, I had morning sickness, but it wasn't too bad. It was sort of, you know, first thing in the morning, I'd be sick and I'd eat breakfast and then pretty much be okay um, for the rest of the day. But the morning sickness, and I, you know, I had morning sickness with Violet, very, very similar, um, just the be sick and then feel pretty good for the rest of the day. Definitely feeling the fatigue and things like that with the hormones and growing a baby in that first trimester. You know, with Violet's birth, it sort of resolved itself at sort of 12, 13 weeks. But with this pregnancy, it sort of tracked a bit further along. I think I was like 18 weeks and Mm -hmm. I was still being sick. And because I was still having blood tests and things like that more frequently, yeah, I, I was sort of getting over it a little bit. So um, we tried the B vitamins and mm-hmm. I was taking another medication to help with the nausea. And I think I took that for about a month and then stopped taking that. And luckily the sickness was gone. So other than the morning sickness, we got to 20 weeks and I was diagnosed with gestational diabetes. We knew that I had the gestational diabetes because I was checking my blood sugar once a so four times a day, once a week per month. So I actually didn't do one of the 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 drink tests. I didn't do that because I was already checking with a monitor on my blood sugars anyway. So um at twenty weeks I started insulin overnight before bed to help with my fasting levels. I continued that all the way through until Henry was born. And luckily it was, yeah, pretty much under control. I think I started at like eight clicks of insulin and I think I finished at like 26 clicks of insulin. So, um, yeah, luckily it wasn't um, the gestational diabetes was, for me, pretty okay to to look after. And I didn't have to change too many things with my diet. Just sort of keep an eye on things and see what what was trending and what was happening. Um, But it was probably more just the organisational thing of making sure I kept my finger prick test with me so I could check it all the time. And, yeah. But, yeah, that, that, you know, obviously can be a little bit, you know, can can be hard. But, um, again, just sort of took it in my stride and sort of just sort of took it week by week. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah, luckily it wasn't um, sort of too detrimental to, to my, you know, to my journey and to my to being pregnant. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's good. And so what was the plan for Henry's birth? Because, well, obviously you're, you know, high risk of, because of your uterus transplant. Were you going to birth uh, at the women's hospital? Was that the plan then? Yes. Yeah, that was always the plan. Um, have the transplant team, so Dr. Deans and everyone that cared for me for our surgery. So everyone was there. Um, and I also had my obstetrician gynecologist. I had two of them there um, yeah. and one of my midwives with me as well. So, yeah. Wow. So it was going to be a full room. You Was it a, a planned elective? C-section was that? Yeah. Yeah. And that was done at 37 weeks on the dot. Wow. Because they, so uh, was it that they didn't want you to potentially go into labour because of, you know, obviously the transplant and how, well, who knows how the uterus could react, I guess, right? Yes, correct, correct. So 
how did you, I guess, prepare, you know, maybe more mentally for this C-section, knowing that obviously the last time you had a cesarean, things went, you know, they, they definitely took a turn. Did you have a bit of trauma to work through in that sense? Yeah, I think I pushed that out of my mind for mm-hmm. most of the pregnancy. I think yeah. it definitely started playing on my mind towards the end when the doctors and the team were sort of starting to talk to me about how it would look and who would be in the room and what the plan yeah. was. So, yeah, a little bit of nerves, but I knew, you know, every day we were getting closer. I was getting closer to meeting Henry. We did know that we were having a little boy. We had two names picked out and I sort of said to my husband, I've got decision fatigue. I'm happy with either of the names so you can choose. So, yeah, Nick chose the night before. He chose Henry and my little man. We had spoken about putting mum's name, mum's first name in Henry's middle name. So it's Henry Nicholas Michelle Bryant. So, yeah, it was all exciting. We had an appointment at the hospital the day before, so I got to see all the team, have a chat. They told me what time they needed me at the hospital, so I was the first one in the morning, so we were there nice and early. We had a really nice dinner the night before. We went out for dinner with my mum and my dad and my mother-in-law and Violet, of course, and everyone was just excited. There was just everyone was anticipating this, yeah, really exciting yeah, birthday, birth, and yeah, the bags were packed, we were ready to go. So yeah, the next morning we got up, we walked to the hospital. I wasn't allowed to have a coffee. Obviously I was fasting. Mum come with us because I was very, very fortunate to not only have my husband there holding my hand, but my mum got to scrub in and she was in the anesthetic bay throughout the treatment but the doors were open so she could see everything and then once Henry was born Nick went with Henry to the anesthetic bay and that's where they like did all their newborn checks and did the APGAR score and things like that um, and my mom actually got to come in and she sat next to me where Nick was sitting and she got to hold my hand whilst I was getting sutured up and um, the surgery was being finished so my mom got to not only watch the whole thing of Henry being birthed but also um, got to be there in the cesarean to hold my hand when, yeah, when we finished up. So it was worlds apart from uh, my first cesarean section. I mean, there were some similarities. Obviously, you know, I had an epidural before this one with Henry, a little bit different because I obviously wasn't having contractions because I wasn't in labour. But, I mean, yeah, some similarities, but also some very big differences. And, again, I think that that also has to do with, you know, violence was an emergency, so there was probably a little less. Everyone was, yeah, it was a bit more urgent, whereas Henry's, there was no urgency. Where everyone yeah. was happy and calm and taking their time. And I knew everyone's faces. I knew all the voices in that room. Yeah, it was uh, it was wonderful. Well, that's incredible that you had Nick there for, obviously, the birth, and then you had your mom for the aftermath where it can feel really lonely because you know usually the partner goes with the baby um and then it's just you with you know usually it's a bunch of strangers you know and in your case well it wasn't strangers but you had your mom which is oh like I mean your mom is obviously a huge part of this you know story and wow she's been from start to finish she's been there holding my hand all the way through and yeah, I just couldn't have done any of this without her. You know, 
again, I didn't really know that I wanted to be a mum. But, you know, once I met Nick and I fell pregnant, I'm just, I'm so lucky that I've had my mum there with me. And, you know, I can look to her when I have any questions and she's there to hold my hand. And yeah, she's, she's just been such a rock through this whole thing. And I, uh, I'm just so, so fortunate. Oh, that's just mind blowing that, you know, again, your, your mum donated her uterus to you. It's the uterus that carried you and your brother and now carried little Henry, her grandson. And it's just like, wow, what a story. Yeah. 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 It's, it's amazing. And, you know, something we didn't touch on, but I think is really cool to share. You know, I remember after the, the transplant, Dr. Yana Pittman actually said to me, you know, how does it feel? Does, you know, does it feel, is it, is it strange? Like, how does it feel knowing that, you know, you have a uterus now, but also that, it, you know, it's your mum's uterus. And I said, yeah. it feels so normal. It feels so natural. I'm, you know, I feel there's there's no difference. I'm, I feel so content knowing yeah. that, you know, it's my mum's uterus and, um, yeah. Yeah, it just felt so natural. Wow. And so let's talk about now. How are you recovering after, you know, you've had Henry uh, four weeks ago now, so you've had a cesarean, which obviously comes with its its lot of recovery in itself and obviously the birth and so on. How is life now with, you know, your two beautiful kids and, you know, what is it like? So with Henry's birth, I did have a little bit of a bleed, which they were totally prepared for. So I did lose two litres of blood. I actually didn't feel any of really the the effects of that blood Uh loss. So I did end up having an iron fusion. Um, Uh Henry was born on a Friday. So the following day, um, I had an iron infusion. But actually, we I felt really, really good and I had the catheter removed the next day. I was up and out of bed, being able to go to the bathroom by myself. You know, I was able to change Henry's nappies like straight away, whereas with Violet, um, obviously with that major blood loss, but, you know, I didn't change a nappy for her until six days. You know, yeah. I wasn't really getting out of bed sort of that straight away. So, yeah, worlds apart in the recovery yeah. this time around. Um, I was out of hospital at five days and we Mm -hmm. actually drove home from Sydney on day six and we were home before Christmas which is just was our biggest you know we didn't know what recovery and and what it would be like and how Henry would be so we weren't sure if we would get home before Christmas Um, we had all of our fingers and toes crossed and obviously the team from Sydney really wanted us to be home for Christmas so yeah we were very very lucky and we did get home for Christmas and settling into life as, as a family of four, it was just so nice to be at home under one roof all together because at different stages of, you know, leading up to Henry's birth, you know, I my husband wasn't with me and then at one stage Violet wasn't with me and then once Henry was born, obviously Violet was set, well, Violet wasn't in hospital with us. She was staying mm-hmm. with um, both my parents and Nick's parents out of the hospital. So there was we had nights without Violet. So it was just so, so nice to be home under one roof and have all four of us together. And Violet is settling in as being a big sister and she's just, yeah, she's smitten with him. She loves him so much. And we are, we're all in love. We love being a little family and really being able to enjoy 
this postpartum and yeah enjoy that little bubble that you have you know that you know when they're this little and you don't really go out and sort of you know people are visiting you but you're sort of just staying at home yeah it's been lovely that's amazing I'm I'm so glad you're settling in and you know Violet is is you know doing amazing as well and she's transitioned well to being a big sister and wow and so can I ask and feel free to not answer if you don't want to do you in the future have plans to have more children maybe or what is the plan? Will you be keeping your mom's uterus or, or not? So the part of the clinical trial is five years or two live births, whichever mm-hmm. comes first. I was lucky enough that, yes, after Henry's birth, I, everything went well. I didn't need a hysterectomy. We haven't made a decision about what we're going to do I would love to have a third before my hysterectomy that was always the plan I really wanted three children it's just me and my brother but my husband actually has two siblings so he's one of three he's Mm -hmm. got one brother one sister which I just think is so lucky he gets the best of both worlds growing up I always wanted a sister. I used to beg my mum to have another baby because I wanted a sister so badly. I dressed my brother up as a fairy all the time. I used to, I think it's just such a special relationship you can have with a sister. But I mean, my brother and I are thick as thieves. So um, I definitely wasn't missing out. And I, you know, I don't think Violet or Henry are missing out if we don't, you know, we don't have another one. But I think it's just a lot to go through. I think, I mean, even just having one child and and going through this journey this year was a lot. And then imagining doing the logisticals of, you know, traveling and appointments with two little ones. Yeah. Yeah, So at this, at this stage, we're just enjoying, you know, that postpartum. Um, But yeah, it's um, nothing set in stone. No, no, that's right. And, you know, I mean, I'm asking you this question. You're four weeks postpartum. Like, (laughs) of course, of course you're going to say you don't know or, you know, like you haven't decided. Makes sense. You know, I'm asking it. It's really soon. So, yeah, so hence why I said, you know, feel free to not answer or and or, you know, the answer you gave is obviously very much what I was expecting because, well, how would you know, you know? And the good thing is you've got, what, four years now, I guess, to – to decide and to kind of see what's happening and and how you feel and how the family feels and and just yeah think about it and you know and you've got five embryos so you you've said you know they're they're there and you know things could happen and or you may decide in four years time that a family of four is you know it is working for you guys and that's all you want and yeah that will be it so yeah we'll see what life brings to you I guess. We will see what the next 12 months bring. It's, yeah, who would have thought, you know, surgery on the 10th of January and then this little man came on the 15th of December. So all in the same 12 months. So, Alicia, who knows what 2024 is going to (laughs) bring? Wow. When you put it that way, it's absolutely crazy. Like absolutely everything happened. Yes. Like I know your clinical trial, it it took, you know, it was, you know, a few steps and so on. But from your surgery to Henry's birth is like just, just under 12 months. It's 11 months and, you know, like two weeks really. Mind blowing, mind blowing. That's amazing. The, 
the team at the Royal Women's Hospital are they're still working hard, conduct- working hard. Yes, they're still <laughs> conducting this trial, is that right? Yes, yep. So there was a lovely lady after me that had her surgery in the March and she is pregnant and she is more than halfway. So um and then they've done a third surgery more recently. So I think that's all gone well. So fingers and toes crossed. I'm just so, so happy for, you know, obviously the team that, are, you know, our team that are looking after us, you know, the, all the doctors and things, but also everyone that's, you know, going through the trial. Like it's just, yeah, it's very exciting and all my fingers and toes crossed for the best outcomes for everyone. Wow, what an amazing outcome. Like it's, I'll, I'll put the links to, you know, the, the research, the clinical trial, the team and everything if anyone wants to, you know, have a look because, wow, like whether, you know, you want to read more about it or, you know, you might be interested. I don't know if they take any more women, but what an amazing journey you've, you've gone on. And, you know, for science, thank you for doing what you've done because you're helping science, you're helping, you know, people like, Dr. Yana to just, you know, evolve and and be able to give this opportunity to women to be able to carry a child when they they weren't born with a uterus or they lost it uh, for any reasons. And that is amazing. That's life changing. And it's it's just expanding our, you know, horizons for future generations, you know. It is. It's great. I can't imagine what it will be like for Violet in the future. Um, Yeah, it's it's just mind boggling what the options will be for Violet with her fertility in the future. And yeah, I'm just, yeah, very, very grateful. Thank you so much, Kirsty, for coming on the podcast, for sharing your story. It's all very new. It's it's all happened in the last four weeks. And, um, well, thank you so much. I am in awe of everything you've gone through and how, you know, smiling and positive and, and you know, you are because it couldn't have been easy what you've gone through. It sounds like an incredible journey with a lot of hoops and obstacles and you just stayed positive the whole time. It's Wow, it's amazing. Good on you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, thank you for asking me on and chatting about this because, yeah, I I love sharing my story. And, yeah, there are ups and downs, uh, you know, that we've been through. But, um, yeah, I I love chatting and I love getting the awareness out there for the clinical trial and hopefully providing a bit of hope for people that, you know, are having their own ups and downs with their fertility journey. So amazing. Thank you. I will link your page as well to the show notes. There'll be like a lot of links in the show notes, but you know, I'll put everything in there so that anyone can go and check it out. And I I will continue to follow you on socials to see, you know, what, what this year brings to you in general, you know, and, and watch little Henry and little Violet grow and so on and you know see if you put some updates out there you know thank oh, happily you so much. thank you Kirsty thank you no worries thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed this episode if you want to get notified of when a new episode comes out please subscribe to this show on your podcast listening platform Also, I would really appreciate it if you could leave me a review on Apple Podcast or share this episode so that other mom can find it. If you would like to tell your own pregnancy, birth or parenting story, please head to the show notes and you will find a form there to get in touch with me. Again, thank you so much for listening and I will be with you again next week for a new episode. Thank you.